The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, he will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome to another episode of the Coachella Valley Chronicles. And I said another because it means they let me do this again. This is awesome. Last time I had my guest, uh, this guest on the show, I'd almost ran out of time just reading his accomplishments. So this time I'm going to go straight to the introduction. Welcome back to the Chronicles again, Bruce Fessier. Bruce, how are you? Doing fine, Randy. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. I'm going to start on the serious side, and then we'll go the other direction throughout the rest of the conversation. Okay. <laughs> That's not too imposing, is it? Hey, when we no, no. when we finished our last show, we were talking about the Desert Sun and the takeover of newspapers in this country by large hedge funds. Yesterday, yeah. I had commented to you that the calendar section of the L.A. Times was bigger than our Desert Sun, and I certainly understand there were reasons behind that because of the award season and such. But it led me to really think, Bruce, is there a future for newspapers in areas like the Coachella Valley? Well, there's always going to be digital prod- prod- products um, where there used to be newspapers, uh, but I don't think that there's going to be the staffs that, that can do the kind of journalism that we used to do ever again, because uh, the success of, a, of, a, of any type of a newspaper or almost any type of media is measured by metrics. And when you're measuring your success by the extent of your reach, you're not going to be wanting to cover just a local market. You're going to want to be able to expand your news reach. And that means uh, covering Victorville and covering Rialto and, uh, you know, where the major markets are. Obviously, Rialto is not a major market, but you're going to be looking for, for stories that appeal to people beyond Palm Springs. And if it can appeal to people throughout California, that's all the better. So you're going to miss a lot of the local stories that uh, were very interesting and made, made Palm Springs unique. Where do you think those stories are going to come from going forward, Bruce? And how would your career have been different if you had started in the age of social media? Oh, well, you know, it, it would have been completely different. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the type of career that I had. And, and it was really the, the opportunities to meet the people who lived here that made me want to stay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, when I was at San Francisco State, I had the opportunity to... to to, um, I was uh, I was I, I was hoping to go to the San Francisco Chronicle, and a lot of my predecessors who had won the awards or had had the success in college that I had went to the San Francisco Chronicle. But I was told that I had we went over this a little bit last time. Uh, I was told that I had to move around, and I would have been climbing the ladder from one newspaper to another, and I never would have really gotten to know. Uh, um, a local market the way I've gotten to, to know Palm Springs. But there was a certain time in my career here in Palm Springs that I realized that, that Palm Springs was a, a living museum. I always <laughs> uh, borrow a phrase that John Travolta used in Pulp Fiction. It's a, it's a wax museum with a pulse. 
Oh, that's a great and line. It, <laughs> it is. It, it is. And, and I just discovered that there were so many historic people living in Palm Springs, and they were at a time in their life where they were not so busy that they didn't have time to reflect on their careers or, or their, their lives. So I got into their homes, and they treated me like not just an average reporter, but somebody they really wanted to talk to. And sometimes I was a psychotherapist because they they really wanted to be analyzed and, and figure out why they did the things that they did. And I realized this was a unique opportunity for me. And I was hoping that I could get some books or something out of it to compensate for the for the little salary I was getting from the Desert Sun. <laughs> and uh, but and it, I've tried working on several books and, and haven't gotten any published yet, but I still have so much information from all those interviews that I've done over 40 years that I've, it's still very valuable today and I still have projects that I'm working on because I stayed here. Yeah, you, you retired from the Desert Sun, but you haven't stopped writing, correct? No, absolutely not. And, and I really learned how the, the, the newspaper business should be really evolving. I had a cousin, I told you before that I had two cousins who, who were in the business and, and one of them uh, worked for Variety in the 1960s and, and he worked for the Los Angeles Times. And then he, he realized that he wasn't really making as much money as he could be making because other people who were not in the newspaper business were taking his stories and turning them into films. And when you work for a newspaper, the newspaper owns your copyright. Mm. When you're a freelancer, you retain your copyright. So he started working for the Santa Barbara Weekly, and, and he was driving a cab, and he was just collecting stories, and he was turning in treatments to try and get movie deals. And, and I've got a, I've got a, a very good uh, entertainment attorney now who is telling me what my stories are really worth. And they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote my story on the history of the mafia in the Coachella Valley, I had people who were coming to me and wanting to exploit my story and turn it into a mo- turn it into movies, turn it into speaking engagements. I I, I got invited to speak at the Mob Museum uh, in Las Vegas, <laughs> and uh, you know they they offered me so little. I always used to say they gave me an offer and was able to refuse. <laughs> Did they give you any idea who was going to play you in the movie? Uh, well, we didn't get that far because the, because the Desert Sun owned the copyright. Right. And, uh, and and I know that they started getting offers, too, because uh, Greg Burton, my executive editor at that time, sent a note out right after the last story was published uh, reminding everybody that stories that appeared in the Desert Sun was the um, property of the Desert Sun, <laughs> and we did not have the rights to them. I mean, I've never seen that that memo go out to the staff any other time in my career. So it was obvious that he was being hit up. And why newspapers don't have a development director to try to take some of their stories and turn them into movies or have work with an agency like CAA to find out who'd be interested in buying their products. I've had I've had several people come to me and wanting me to be consultants on stories, and they pay ten to fifteen thousand dollars an episode for for a consultant, and they usually have several consultants on TV shows. Uh, there's there's a lot of be mo- money to be made in content, but newspapers are doing the things the same way they were doing it fifty and a hundred years ago, 
And they're not really taking full advantage of the great content that newspapers produce. That's a really good point. You know, the other thing that <clears throat> reading newspapers early on, you, you talked about the fact that you were a um, you wrote a daily column. Um, and I know yeah. growing up, I was reading a lot of the, you know, what I referred to as the three dot columnists, the Herb Canes and the Art Hoppies and the Art Bookwalds of the world. Um, is there a place for that anymore today or are those people just going to have to become bloggers? Um, I don't think there is a place for it unless it's unless the person who's writing it already has a, a brand. Hmm. If George Clooney were to write a three-dot columnist, yeah, it would do very well. <laughs> Randy <laughs> but, Florence, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the problem is that uh, you, your success is measured by um, – engaged engagement time as well as eyeballs on on a story mm-hmm. and that's why you see these these things online where they, they they present a photograph and then you have to hit next and then you see about a paragraph and then you have to hit next they're trying to keep your eyes on the story for at least 10 minutes so so they can figure out how how they can place advertising in those stories and and when you're when you're writing a, a three dot column and your your items are just two or three sentences long at the most, it's not there's it doesn't engage the audience long enough to be able to. I mean, certainly the whole column, if it's really great, is is going to engage the audience. But a three dot columnist isn't written. A three dot column is not written to make sure that everybody reads the, the story from beginning to end. It's you know you can read as much of it as you want to, and and uh, so it, it, that I just don't see uh, that having a, a place anymore. You'll, you'll you see a lot of short stories, but not a combination of short stories. The idea that you've got something good in a content and you're not expanding it into something that can keep the readers engaged for ten minutes is looked upon as a waste of time. It's the Twitter universe. Yeah, yeah, hundred and forty characters or less 280 actually 289 (laughs) they had to increase that that's right Mm -hmm. hey you mentioned to me in our last conversation that one of your uh, influences as a writer was was mark twain growing up i I, early on i i kind of gravitated towards uh writers that didn't seem to be usual for my age Uh, people like james thurber and people like that at a very young time um did you? Who were your other influences? Well, you know, I when I was fourteen, uh, I ha- they asked you when you were a freshman in high school. At least back when I was in high school, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? You know, like a fourteen-year-old's going to be able to figure that <laughs> one out. Uh, and so I, I was already enamored by writing at that time because I had written some short stories and read them to my class, and I got the class to laugh, and there was no greater feeling. Yep. So I put down for, I put journalism when I was fourteen because that was the only thing on the list that involved writing that was a career. And I was started as a sports writer because, as I as I mentioned, Jim Murray was was already my idol by that time, and I started reading Grantland Rice. Mm-hmm. because he was one of Jim Murray's idols. And then I started reading other uh, writers from the 1920s, and I started um, r- reading people who were really good at parodies. And that's what led me to Mark Twain, was that he was, just, he, he was, he was wonderful at writing parodies and kind of a acerbic humor. Mm-hmm. And it was the kind of humor that, 
that I liked from the Algonquin, the wits of the Algonquin Round Table in New York in the 1920s, uh, George Kaufman and, and Alexander Wolcott and uh, Robert Benchley and uh, Dorothy Parker, people like that. Wow. And it was it was that kind of biting wit that really was exemplified on the big screen by the Marx Brothers. Groucho mm-hmm. Marx was uh, was as quick witted as any of those guys, and and you know he was a very good writer. I've read I've read about about seven of his books, you know. So uh, so so th- that's what kind of got me started. I've always had this passion for finding the roots of what I like. I mean, I, in in terms of music, I. Well, I, I I was attracted to the Rolling Stones, and so I wanted to hear what kind where where their roots were, and that led me to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, and from there I that led me to Count Basie, and and that led me to Duke Ellington, that led me to Charlie Parker. You know, it's always I've always had this curiosity about where something comes from, and it's really expanded my interests uh, tremendously. I love you taking us down that road. Thank you. When we come back from the uh, break here, I want to talk a little bit about kind of dissecting how you put a story together, uh, Bruce. And we'll talk about that original Watergate story when we return to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Chronicles. I am Randy Florence with my guest, Bruce Fessier. Bruce, on your retirement, Kristen Sharkey wrote, he's impressed on me the importance of honoring the past in a way that provides context for the present and the future. What do you think she meant by that? Well, and you you always want to try to write with depth and you it's all about context and the best way to put something into context is know the history of what you're writing about and and once you once you really once you really go down the rabbit hole of history you start finding all these other things that you you weren't aware of and and you find out how germane they are to today so that's always been the approach that I've taken is to try to see what came before this story that I'm writing about and see how I can apply that history to the story that I'm that I'm writing about today and and frankly it's not a, a, a my own concept it's something that I remember when I was in college and I was taking a feature writing class and they were talking about how to make a story uh an investigative re- piece of reporting and it meant finding sources that other people didn't have. Mm. And that's what you should be doing for every story, really. You don't have time to do that for every breaking news story. But when you're writing a feature story, you're always trying to find something that, uh, an approach that somebody else doesn't have. So it, for, for me, finding, finding the history of a story would lead to new sources. And it also, again, it expanded my, 
my my list of sources. Uh, Kristen was very complimentary about me being a, a very well-sourced journalist in the Coachella Valley. So um, th- that's what that means. I love how you talk about, uh, and, and it fit in there too, the roots of what I like, uh, that you like to dig in and find out where everything came from. Did you tear things apart as a kid? Um, sort of, because I did have really weird taste as a kid. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort of a family joke that the first album I ever had to own, I didn't be, when I was five years old. My my parents took me to see the the movie Porgy and Bess, uh, uh, the uh, the film version of, of the of the great uh, opera and. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just really connected to, to black culture at a, at a very early age. And like I said, I, the Rolling Stones was the first album that I bought with, with my own money. And they were so influenced by, by black blues artists. Uh, and, and when I started playing trumpet, uh, my dad was, a was a, a swing trumpet player in, in the 1940s. And, he was he played the, the these charts these arrangements that were considered white big band music and i i picked up the trumpet and my dad loved harry james and i started playing some harry james music never got it never understood the appeal of it and then i heard louis armstrong and i go ah <laughs> now i understand <laughs> it made sense what, and and it was and and all these white guys like Harry James were very very much influenced by by Louis Armstrong, mm-hmm. but there was just this this layer between what was accessible to white people, and and you really had to do some digging to find out what the real music, what the roots of the music was. So so I started doing that at at an early age, I suppose. So so you could say I I have been doing that for a long time just to figure out why I like this kind of music that, or, this, or I like this kind of writing that maybe other people don't like. Did you recognize back then um, the kind of appropriation of, of black music from white artists like Pat Boone and stuff uh, back then? Was that even on your mind? Well, I, I didn't really come up in the 50s, so, so well, that really true. wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, so it's okay, but... Uh, I, I certainly was aware that there was this class culture, and and as I got older, I, I realized it existed everywhere. When when I, I grew up in Whittier, and uh, there was a there, there was uh, I went to a school where there was kids who lived on one side of Beverly Boulevard in the hills, and I lived on the other side of Beverly Boulevard that were not in the hills, and the hill kids were. They had more money. The houses had, were worth more because they were on a hill and they had a view, and and they looked down on us. and And later on, I would realize I started driving into into uh, Hollywood when I was eighteen and and getting involved in the L.A. culture. And I real, realized how much the people in in L.A. looked down on people in Whittier. <laughs> you know, that Whittier was made fun of. In fact, John F. Kennedy made fun of, of Richard Nixon being from Whittier. And that was very apparent to to all of us who grew up in Whittier in, in the 1960s, um, that John Kennedy made fun of our town. Why is that? You know, <laughs> my and, uncle graduated and, 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 from Whittier and I heard that story. <laughs> really? OK, yes. OK. 
So so so, and if you go to Los Angeles, West LA looks down on East LA. If you if you go to San Francisco, San Franciscans look down on Los Angeles. You know, it's it's that way. It's it's a it's a class structured society in, in the United States, Absolutely. and that always bothered me, frankly. But and I and I'm still informed by that. I'm still writing about that today. Good. We're going to talk about that when we come back. We'll return with the Coachella Valley Chronicles and my guest Bruce Fessier. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back to the Chronicles. Here with my guest Bruce Fessier. Bruce, last night I was watching uh, one of my favorite shows and a character used the line... I want to make sure I get this right. What is grief if not love persevering? We don't need to talk about that line, but it hit me so powerfully, I actually had to pause the show for a moment and think about that. And it made me wonder, have you come up with any lines like that that you were particularly proud of or that people have talked about? Uh, you know, people do talk about, I mean, I still get it on Facebook a lot. You know, um, uh, I, I can't recite them off the top of my head. That's the problem with a writer as opposed to an actor. You know, the actors remember your lines and the writers <laughs> are just thinking about the next one. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a line. For There's you. a line. I'm going to write that down. A famous Bruce Fessier <laughs> quote. Okay, I want to talk for a moment about the way you put stories together. Uh, the, the Watergate story was a very important one for you. You wrote that back when you were at San Francisco State, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me an idea about how a story like that comes together, how you put it together, how you go about uh, getting your sources, uh, or something like the expose on the mafia. When you made the decision to write that story, how does that look? Well, that's a, those are interesting um, stories that you selected for me to analyze because they're not stories that I would have thought that my newspaper would give me the time to do. Most of the time, you're you're told to write a story when you need it by five o'clock or something like that. You know, you you're, you're a, a newspaper person is a creature of deadlines. Mm-hmm. Those two stories were stories that that I was given more time to develop than probably any other stories I've ever written. And at San Francisco State, um, they, it was the, the editors, the best editors are the ones who really know your passion. I've had, I've had some really good editors at Desert Sun who just love chatting with me, and, and they'd find out more about my background. And, and from, from hearing about my background, they'd realize what stories that I was capable of doing. 
And at San Francisco State, they learned that I was from Whittier, and we were. This was right at the height of the Watergate era, and uh, it was a natural that 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 somebody from from Whittier would would know would have sources. Like, like I said last time, my my grandmother knew Richard Nixon's mother, and I took piano lessons from from Nixon's cousin. And my my I didn't mention this, but my father also uh, had the same. A basketball coach that Richard Nixon had at Whittier College. Only Richard <laughs> Nixon had him as a football coach. Wow. And Richard uh, Richard Nixon's advisor at Whittier College uh, turned out to be became the president of Whittier College. And my grandmother's we inherited my grandmother's house, and it was right next to Whittier College. And the president of Whittier College tried. To, tried to, uh, 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 to to take the the house. Um, what's what's the phrase that they use in in, in eminent, eminent, eminent domain? domain. Yeah. Right by eminent domain, and it was a private college. A private college doesn't have the right to eminent domain, you know. But this guy wanted my my grandmother's house for a for a dorm, and anyway, so so I had all these sources, and and I knew I knew the histories and. And I would talk about them at, at San Francisco State, and they said, you know what? How about if we sent you to Whittier, take a couple weeks off of off of college, and and you go down there and you know develop your sources while you're up here. So I I started making phone calls and I started doing my research while I was at San Francisco State, and I came up with about 20 good sources of people to interview. And then I set up the times that I would uh, I, that I would uh, be available, or these people would be available, where I could meet with them. And so I had a structure set up for my interviews from from the very beginning. And then, of course, there's always the you learn as you learn more, you you discover the need for follow up interviews. And so there, were, I, I had the time to be able to fit some of that in. And uh, by the time I came back, I had so much material. It was supposed to be one story, but we turned it into a three-part series. So, so that's unusual. And, mm. the, and the same way with the, with the mafia story. I was, um, I, I, I've known. Uh, <laughs> this sounds really weird, but I've known a lot of mobsters in my time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, Greg Burton used to come by my desk, and he used to love to swap stories with me and one day he came by and he saw this picture on my desk of myself sandwiched by a couple of goombas and that's not a real flattering word that i should be using if i want to be politically correct but they were there you know one of them was a was a real mafia soldier and and uh another one was a guy who had strong ties and they looked like they came right out of the sopranos and so he started talking to me about that, and he started he started asking me questions about, you know, what mobsters I knew in in, in Palm Springs, and and he knew, of course, Frank Sinatra always had this association with with the mafia, and that was uh, that was, I mean, there were wives' tales that go back. I had heard that when I was growing up in Whittier, and we were coming out to Palm Springs, and and Palm Springs was known for mafia because Frank Sinatra lived there, so. You know, he realized that this is a story that we're that we could look into an age-old myth of Palm Springs and and talk about what really happened. And he gave me six months to work on this story. Wow! And I couldn't I couldn't believe I had been talking about wanting to do something like this for for years, but 
I never dreamed that the newspaper would give me that much time to do an investigative piece. So I read books. I interviewed lots and lots of people. And once again, once I had all these sources and materials, and we talked, and then my editor talked to me about the tone that he wanted this story to take. He wanted it to be kind of a noir, film noir type of a tone to the story. That's not that's not something that most editors tell you to to, to do. No. I mean, they don't dictate how the, the the story is going to sound. But Greg Burton is a very good editor, and he's now the uh, executive e- editor of the uh, Arizona Republic, and he's in charge of all the uh, Gannett newspapers in the western United States. And he's won so many awards over the years. He, he's very good. Mm. And uh, so so – he helped me develop it. I had a couple other editors who worked with me a lot on tone. And a part of that was was breaking rules. I mean, a, a newspaper story always attributes its, its sources. Well, on this story, I had so many sources that we just, we, including books, that we just ran a bibliography at the end of the five-part series. And, and um uh, and it was it was a story unto itself just to see how I had found the sources for my stories. And then, of course, we three-dimensionalized it even more by putting together uh, – we did a, a talk with Todd Goldberg, who uh, has has made a career – I interviewed Todd. You know Todd. I love his new book. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, he's he's uh, been fascinated by gangsters uh, in, in Palm Springs himself, and we did a – we did a, a question and answer session. Maggie Downs actually uh, moderated it at Melvin because Mel Haber had a lot of mafia stories, and and uh, he was happy to to lend us his restaurant for us to do this 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 public event. And um, we started doing a lot of that sort of thing. Where if we had a really good story, we would want to we would want to present it to a live audience. When I did my story on Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. We did. We got Jack Jones and Trini Lopez and Rita Vale, and we put them at Lord Fletcher's, where, which was one of Sinatra's big hangouts. He had his own uh, photograph, a portrait of him hanging there, and we we had a, a, a wonderful Q and A that was very entertaining. So those are ways that the, the newspaper uh, kept growing and and re- remained lively and. Um, that's such you know, a desert that, thing to do, ha- have those live yeah. conversations about a newspaper story. I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I still I still would like to do more moderating of that sort of thing. But, of course, with the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Zoom moderation is, is all in vogue now. Uh, did you? Yeah, right. Was there are there any stories behind the stories on that mafia story? Did I, any buddy? you know, tell you to stop or uh, well, you, know, you were going to be swimming with the, the fishes? Hey, frankly, uh, I, I expected that. I was a little nervous about going <laughs> into that. Uh, but it turned out that people came out of the woodworks wanting to tell me the, about their mafia ties. I, I mean, there's, there's a woman who, um, well, I'll tell you her name because she wasn't, wasn't afraid to, to tell me hers. She's, she's, she works in the nonprofit sector, and she's been uh, a very well-known. Do you know Susan Francis? Yes. 
Susan Francis is Meyer Lansky's niece, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and 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 she she was so she's so proud of the fact that Meyer Lansky, who is the financial genius of the of of, syndicate, of organized crime, gave her these Christmas ornaments. You, you want to see Meyer Lansky's balls? <laughs> no, I don't really no, want to see Meyer Lansky's balls <laughs> or his Christmas ornaments. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, let's, hey, we have just a couple of minutes left in this segment. And, and at the uh, final segment, I want to get a little bit into the partnership between you and Jane. But but to finish out this segment here, let, let me try a couple of things here. What was your what's your favorite show at Coachella that you saw? Well, I got to go back to the first one because it was so uh, surprising. I mean, nobody expected anything like that to 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 really uh, take off, and also uh, in the, in that first year, it was it was it was, it was so disorganized. Yeah. It was disorganized in, in in certain ways. You had access to the artists, and and the photographers could take pictures of anything that they wanted. Uh, and it, I I I went backstage and encountered Moby, who <laughs> did one of the best sets I've ever seen at Coachella, and. You know, he gave me his CD. <laughs> you, you, you can't, and and just I'll I'll never forget the the first time that you hear you, you realize there's this incredible music coming from five different stages uh, on this giant polo field, and I'll, I'll, I never I'll never forget going looking around and trying to find the certain place where you could hear it all. You know, you could hear it bleeding from one one venue to another, and they took care of that in subsequent years. Yeah. But that first year, there was there was a certain place where you could you could hear this cacophony of sound, and it was such diverse sound that I was just I, I just felt like like uh, top of the world, Ma. That had to be Nirvana for you. It was. It really it really was amazing, and and. Um, the, the 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 acts were were so surprising because they were so good and and nobody believed that they could pull it off and they lost they almost lost their shirts that first year you know and and uh, that's because they they took risks that they were just doing things by their own passion rather than figuring this is going to make us money that's right and uh, and that's so what that's it should have been about special. Thank you for that. Hey, when we come back, I'm going to get into a let you uh, brag about your wife a little bit here on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. when, the why, and the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back with my uh, guest, Bruce Fessier. 
Bruce, personally, I've been married 40 years, so I know the importance of a partnership, uh, or at least in my case, uh, uh, finding a partner with low standards in men. Um, (laughs) Clearly an important partnership is what you and Jane have. Um, In 1983, uh, you met her in an interview that you were doing while she was performing in the Man of La Mancha? Well, actually, before she performed in Man of La Mancha, uh, I was introduced to her at a press conference uh, um, to uh, promote Man of La Mancha, and her director uh, asked me to speak with her in a in a, in a separate room. And uh, I walked in there, and she says, "What are you doing here? You're young. <laughs> You're young." <laughs> she had. She had recently moved from Santa Rosa, which you know well, mm-hmm. and and uh, so so I I just found her very um, entertaining and and a breath of fresh air. And uh, then it was it was it was two months later before I actually saw her on stage, and and uh, but I was enamored with her, and I wasn't going to ask her out. Because, you know, first of all, journalists don't do that. I was reviewing the show. But then I was when I saw her on stage, she was just magnificent. And and uh, it was really very strange. I started thinking about, gosh, I, I wanted to ask her out. And I oh. want to ask her out even more. And I was there with my sister. And my sister leaned over to me and goes, you should ask her out on a date. <laughs> and I looked at her. I go, what? <laughs> and. But but I started thinking. I wrote this rave review about her because I, you know, it was an honest review and about the whole show. Nehemiah Persoff was the was the star of the show, and I don't know if you know who he is, but just by uh, name, he's he's best known as as uh, uh, Barbara Streisand's father in Yentl, which is the show that she won the Oscar for yep. best director. Know it well, and uh, yeah, and um, so so I I. I did. Uh, I called up the director afterwards, and and I got her phone number, and uh, I had an invitation to a party that uh, was featuring an appearance by Kirk Douglas and Michael Douglas, and uh, I just asked her if she'd like to join me to this party, and she had to think about it. <laughs> she didn't say me- yes immediately, but uh, her mother said yes. You want to do this, and and uh, so so we went to this party, and it really. Um, it, it, it didn't matter who I was and who she was. We just clicked, and and like you said, we've been a partnership ever since. And talk and, about uh, that. I would love to. Talk. Yeah, talk about well, what like, you guys have been involved in. Okay, but first, let me let me also say that um, there is a there is a, a guy who is very special, uh, who's a mentor to me, named Irving Mills. He was Duke Ellington's manager, and he was the producer of shows at the Cotton Club you know, with Lena Horne and Cab mm-hmm. Calloway and all those people. And um, I, he was one of the first people that made me realize what a living museum the Palm Springs was. And after I wrote a couple stories on him, he just became, uh, he, he, he liked me. And uh, he, he accepted the role. I mean, he just assumed the role of my mentor. And I would, I would go out to dinner with him and, you know, I usually had to have a date. He liked me to have a date with him. And the first two women I went out with, his daughter go, no, 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 you don't want to go out with them. <laughs> and and uh, then I brought Jane along, and his daughter approved of Jane and said, yes, this is the one. That's this it. is the one. <laughs> so so she, she, people always said that she, she 
kind of refined me a bit. She 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 smoothed out my rough edges. And in terms of giving me an appreciation of theater, whereas before I was, like I said, I was just in it for the fun, and I was in I was I was mostly interested in making sure that people read my stories, not that I was actually contributing to the development of a of a play, which you can which a theater reviewer can do. Yeah. So Jane gave me uh, a, a much more serious attitude towards my craft and to, into my position in the Coachella Valley. And, and what, what we did together, I mean, she became um, marketing director of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of the, of the Desert. She was the first marketing director for that organization. And uh, we, uh, we um, back in those days, this was the late 90s, uh, every celebrity uh, looked, you know, they went to all these different golf tournaments, and and uh, and I and I said, you know, and she she was told to put on a celebrity golf tournament, and I, I knew some celebrities, and I knew we lived down the street from Frank Sinatra's personal pianist, Frankie Randall, mm-hmm. and uh, we realized that he could be the figurehead of of a of a tournament of a celebrity golf tournament because he played in all the celebrity golf tournaments, including Sinatra's. In fact, he was the host of the after party at the uh, Frank Sinatra celebrity invitational gala. And so he agreed to do that. And then, then I, I was watching a jazz show with, with Jane and I said, you know what, why not have the celebrities at your golf event be jazz musicians and all these people who love jazz will want to pay to play with one of their favorite jazz musicians. And so we created the Jazz Celebrity Golf and Jam Session because after after the golf, golf was over, the, the musicians would all get together and they would have this incredible jam session. And we had so many fantastic jazz musicians. Jack Jones, who also sang at, at this event, said... How did you get these people? These people would cost these people cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to put on a stage, and we got them all for free because they like playing, hanging out with one another. And and Jane made that work for four different charities. She put that on for for six years, for seven years, but there was she did it for four different charities and, and raised a lot of money. And and uh, it and we I had a uh, I had a, a black um, reviewer who worked for me who reviewed the event and she said we had more blacks on a golf course than any other time in the history of, of Palm Springs because wow. <laughs> <laughs> we had so many great jazz musicians. So well, listen, we've got about one minute left here. What are you and Jane working on together now? Well, Jane is is teaching at. MTU Musical Theater University. Mm-hmm. Um, that's she's working for David Green at, at Ranch. Uh, well, she was working at Ranch Mirage High School. Now she's working out of her house doing Zoom, <laughs> and uh, um, so so she's still contributing to the arts. And uh, we're, we're not working on anything together. But just going back, we we also did this. We, we put on this Desert Rock at the IPAC series. Um, um, we. We worked together on the Desert Theater League. I founded the Desert Theater League, and I, but I couldn't have done it without her because she was the actress who kind of bridged the gap between me being uh, a journalist and working with theater people. So, so we've done so many projects over the years, you know, and and I'm just very proud to have been associated with her professionally as well as personally. 
Thank you for sharing that, Bruce. I, I cut it off a little faster than I wanted to because there's a lot more to hear about that story. So I know we're yeah. going to have uh, more time in the future. Bruce, thanks for joining me again. I appreciate everybody here today on the Coachella Valley Chronicles. Thank you.